we've been working chronologically through the Old Testament and of course we're basically at the point where we're on the brink of the conquest of the Promised Land. In fact, a couple of the kings east of the Jordan have already been defeated, Sihon and Og, and God has already told Moses that he's about to die. Feels like Moses has been about to die for a good while now in our Old Testament series, as uh, it's been several weeks since God has told Moses he's going to die, but he keeps saying just one more thing. Take vengeance on the Midianites and then you'll die. Teach Israel this song and then you'll die. So on and so forth. So we know any time now Moses is about to die. And uh, this is kind of where we are in the, the juncture. We're east of the Jordan. And the Israelites are about to go to the west of the Jordan to conquer the people that live west of the Jordan and take possession of that land. And Deuteronomy is basically a speech or some some theologians think that it's basically a collection of three speeches that have been amalgamated together. But in any case, it's, it's basically discourse from Moses, pretty much given all at once, or, or within a very short span of time. At this time, after Sion and Og have been defeated east of the Jordan, just before the Israelites are about to cross over to the west. And what Moses does in Deuteronomy is he basically rehashes the uh, rescue of the Israelites from Egypt and their constitution as a people at Sinai. He reiterates to them the Ten Commandments and other various laws and he recapitulates and rehearses the journeys that they've taken, the wilderness years, so on and so forth. And then towards the end of the book, uh, there's and throughout really, there's exhortations to love God and to serve God and he elucidates the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. And then we're basically at the end of this book here. Moses is about to teach the Israelites a song that really God wrote and pretty much dictated to Moses. That's what we're looking at sort of this week and next week. And then we'll look at basically God's blessing of the Israelites tribe by tribe through Moses in chapter 33. And then Moses will die and we'll be in Joshua. And all of a sudden, we're looking at the conquest of Jericho and all of the subsequent passages. This is basically where we are in the broad scheme of things. As I said, it feels like Moses has been about to die for a little while now. As we have been, we've heard that he's going to die. He's going to be gathered to his people. And there's one thing after another that now the Lord says, just do this and then you're going to die. Do this and then you're going to die. Tonight is one more thing that happens before Moses dies, recorded for us in Deuteronomy 31, 14 to 29. God tells Moses to teach the people the words of a song he is going to give him. And we will look at the song itself next Sunday night, God willing. But tonight there are a number of things we can glean, even from the lead up, and the introduction to the song itself as described in the passage that we just read, Deuteronomy 31, 14-29. So let's, let's get right into it. First thing we see, well not the first thing, but one of the things we see in this section of scripture is that God knows the wickedness of the Israelites before He even brings them into the land. Look at verse 21 of Deuteronomy 31. 
Many evils, or sorry, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. And here's the relevant section to the point I'm making. For I know what they are inclined to do, even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. Now just to, just to reiterate this point, the Israelites make it into the land by sheer grace. It is not, it just simply is not the case that the Israelites merit possession of the promised land by their virtuous, righteous lives, nor by their wholehearted devotion to God after He condescends to them to rescue them from Egypt by the hand of Moses. It's not that they were bad, but then God sends Moses to them and rescues them and their hearts melt and they respond to Him with just the pure devotion of a young bride to her husband and just are impeccable from that point forward. It's not this happily ever after story where God comes to them, condescends to rescue them by the mediator Moses and then you could just write and they live happily ever after. Not at all. Look, they didn't deserve it when God sent Moses. And even after God sent Moses, and even after He brought them out by His mighty right hand and got glory over Pharaoh and over the gods of Egypt and rescued them uh, in this profound and amazing way, even after this, we see them grumbling and grumbling and disobeying, committing idolatry, sexual immorality, just responding in ways that are so discordant with what God has done for them. <laughs> Moses says, I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. <laughs> Deuteronomy 31:27. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. This is not, this is not really a good people, per se, who are coming into the land of Canaan. They are not coming in by their own merit. They are coming in by grace. Simply because God promised unilaterally to Abram many years earlier that his descendants would be foreigners, exiles, enslaved in a foreign country for a long time and then they would be brought back to the land that Abram was in at the time, namely Canaan. It's just because God is a promise-keeping God. Because God is gracious and merciful. This is why He's bringing them into the land of Canaan. God is under no uh, false impressions here about what's going to happen after He brings these people into the land of Canaan. I know what they're inclined to do even today before I brought them into the land that I swore to give. So note that. Note that God threatens punishments for the impending wickedness that the Israelites will commit. Deuteronomy 31, verses 17 and 18. Then my anger... Well, first of all, let's look at 16. This people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. As I said, God is under no false impressions here. But what's going to happen? God threatens punishments for this. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them 
and hide my face from that, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all of the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. So God is not, God is not saying, yes, they will do this, but it, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. After all, I'm a God of grace. And so when these people go in and they, they whore after foreign gods, my heart will break. And I will wish that they didn't do it. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to do anything about it. Because I am a God of grace and mercy. That's not, that's not at all what's going on in this passage, is it? So, this is, not, this is not the way God is. It's not as if God is ambivalent and as if God is unconcerned about our sin. He threatens punishments, and we know from reading on in the biblical narrative, we know that God makes good on these threats. And He's not that parent that's always nagging and always making empty threats. You know, if you do this one more... Boy... Just try me. One, I'm, I'm telling you, one more time. Just once more. This is not how God is. We know that God makes these threats and that God follows through on these threats as we read the rest of Old Testament history. As we so often emphasize, God is a holy God. And God's wrath burns against sin. God is a jealous God. He will not see us yoke ourselves to foreign gods and just allow us to go whoring after other deities when He has taken us as His own people. So God knows the wickedness of the Israelites before He even brings them into the land. God threatens punishments for their impending wickedness. And you could easily read this section of Deuteronomy 31 and basically just be like, Pretty much it's just God threatening them. God just pretty much criticizing, warning, blasting His people. And you can just basically take this as pretty much just a hard passage of Scripture. But what I want to show you tonight, and this is really, I think, the heart of the passage that we're looking at today, what I want to show you is this. God makes provision for their conviction of sin and their repentance. Look at verse 19. Right after we read what the Israelites are going to do and what God's going to do by way of punishment, what does God say in verse 19? Now, therefore, now, therefore, when we see a therefore, we've got to ask, what is it there for? <laughs> right? In other words, they're going to sin, and I'm going to punish them. Now, because of this, since this is going to happen, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. This, the occasion of the song is that there will be a song when all of this has happened. 
And Israel has sinned greatly against the Lord, and God has hidden His face from them, and He has punished them in various ways and caused various evils and troubles to be upon them. God is concerned that at that time, when He is nowhere to be found, when His face is hidden, God is concerned that there is a song in their collective memory to remind them of His grace and of their sin. Which shows us that God is concerned that there is provision, that there is a witness there, that they are not utterly cast off when He has hidden His face from them, when He has brought evils and troubles upon them. God is very concerned to make sure that they are not utterly cast off and abandoned with no way whatsoever of coming to their senses and turning. God is concerned, as it says in verse 21, that there will be a song to live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. So that when God intentionally turns His face from this wicked people, He can know, as it were, from a distance, that though He is far from them, that there is a song that remains with them, that reminds them of who God has been to them and who they are in relation to God. And the whole, the whole, the very giving of that song, you have to see by implication is gracious. If God, in, if God intended just utterly to just cast them off, hide His face from them and couldn't care less whether they turned, then at the same time, He couldn't care less whether or not they have a song. So by implication, the very purpose of this song is to remind these people to come back to God. God makes provision ahead of time for their conviction and for their repentance. We know, of course, from reading the rest of the Old Testament history, in fact, the very next phase, also that God benevolently brings them in anyway. Even though God knows that they will whore after other gods, that they will turn away from Him. God's telling them this east of the Jordan before they even go west to conquer. He's saying, I know what you're going to do. But He gives them a song, making provision for their future conviction of sin and repentance. And He brings them in anyway. So look at the benevolence of God and the grace of God in spite of knowing full well not only what these people are capable of in principle, but more than that, what they will in fact do in rebellion against it. And we see here again, Moses is God's man. Moses is nearly always towing the party line in terms of what God says. Moses is almost always on God's side. We've seen he's not a perfect guy. We've seen various sins of Moses at various times. And of course, we know he's going to die east of the Jordan because of his sin. So he's not, he's not our sinless, perfect mediator and intercessor and so on and so forth. But as far as human leaders go, Moses is a pretty good guy. And when God gives Moses this song and tells him to teach it to the people of Israel, Moses comes in uh, verse 27 and following and basically repeats verbatim to the people of Israel 
what God has just finished saying about the people of Israel. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today while I am alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly. Turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, proclaiming him to anger through the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. So Moses is God's man, right on, right on God's side, faithfully transmitting what God has told him to do. So he adopts the same posture towards these people and the same strategy towards these people as God himself and aligns himself with the heart of God in this matter. This is what's going on in this passage, all right? Applications to our lives in the 21st century. And I think, I think there, are, there are basically two. Here's the first one. As Moses led these people after the manner of the heart of God, though we are not appointed leaders of theocratic nations, and therefore our roles and responsibilities are certainly different, from Moses. Nevertheless, in the various ways that we have some spiritual leadership and responsibility for people, we ought to lead people after the manner of the heart of God, as Moses did here. So I'm thinking of pastors and deacons, for sure. I'm also thinking of parents. Bring up your ch children in the way they should go, etc., etc. You could think of um, perhaps other roles, but I think those are the two primary ones that come to mind. We recognize that though the role of Moses was not exactly the role of a pastor to these people, there is some sense, in fact, the word shepherd is used. Right? We recognize also that, that he didn't just function in a spiritual shepherding, but there was things like feeding the people and giving them water, which were, again, loosely analogous to the diaconal roles of taking care of people's temporal needs. Right? We recognize that there was a sense in which God is a father to these people. We read it in Deuteronomy 32 as part of the song. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided Jacob. Right? And so this, this parental role is here in this, in this imagery in terms of how God cares for these people and how Moses cares for these people. So we can see shepherding, deaconing, and parenting in Moses' relationship to these people, in God's relationship to these people, and then in Moses' relationship to these people, leading them in a manner after the heart of God. So, what is this way in which we ought to lead? 
What is this way in which I ought to shepherd as a pastor of this flock? What is this way that Jonathan ought to deacon this flock? What is, what is the way in which we ought to parent our children and think about the young ones in our midst even as spiritual fathers and mothers? What is this manner in which we ought to lead? I would say, I would say, we could synthesize it and summarize it like this. We lead with an emphasis on the process rather than an attachment or obsession with the outcome. Look, what did the people do to whom God was a father? What did the people do to whom God was a shepherd? What did the people do to whom God was a deacon, as it were? What did the people do to whom Moses was a father figure and a shepherd and a deacon? They rebelled. They whored after foreign gods. They came into the land and, and did wickedly. What are we to say then? That Moses failed them? That God failed them? That his leadership was poor? No. Whose responsibility was it when people disobeyed and whored after foreign gods? It was the people's responsibility. Not the Lord's. Not Moses. Moses was generally faithful with the process that God had called him to. The process of leadership. The outcome was the people's responsibility. The responsibility of those being led. The process was the responsibility of Moses. Likewise, as fathers and mothers and pastors and deacons, what we are responsible for with respect to those whom we lead is not the outcome. What we are responsible for is the process. What should we be doing then? Well, one, for one thing, we should know ahead of time that people will do wickedly. Bottom line. Listen, if anyone was thinking about going into pastoral ministry, they look, I've seen problems in churches. It's because their pastors are not very good. When I'm a pastor, ain't nobody in my church going to act that way. <laughs> when I'm a pastor, my leadership is going to be such that there are no problems in the pews. I'm not going to let that happen. <laughs> There's going to be no gospel. There's going to be no infidelity. There's going to be no covetousness. There's going to be no relational conflicts. There's going to be no strife. Not under my watch. <laughs> Look, you'd be naive. Or raising up children. There's no way my, my kids are going to talk back to me. There's going to be no rebellion. There's going to be no wandering. There's going to be no disobedience. Not in my home. Look, naive. Okay? God knows already when He brings these people up out of Egypt, they're going to grumble. He already knows that they're going to sin against Him. If you take on the responsibility of 
bringing children into your home to raise them. You've got to know ahead of time. For I know already what they will do before they even do it. First of all, adopt this mentality. Right? Secondly, warn them of God's punishments. God says in this passage, My anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them. And hide my face from them. We need to warn those whom we lead spiritually about God's judgment against sin. We need to tell them what God says, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, about His wrath against sin and about the necessity of walking with Him and fearing Him. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Look, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Listen, church. Listen, children. Listen, whoever it is. This is how you should walk. And if you don't walk this way, you're answerable to God for this. And He will bring evils and troubles upon you. And He will hide His face from you. So we, we know full well what our kids are going to do. And we know full well what our church is going to do. So on and so forth. And we warn. We are spokesmen for God. Spokeswomen too, mothers. Equal opportunity here at CRBC. We, re- we relay faithfully like Moses did. We are, we are God's men and God's women like Moses, relaying faithfully, taking God's line on this, taking God's heart on the matter and relaying faithfully just what God has said. We let people know what's going down. But we minister not only with the threats of God's punishment and not only with an emphasis on the holiness of God and the wickedness of the people that we lead, but we also, man, we also lead after the manner of the heart of God with respect to His grace and with respect to His mercy. Just as God makes provision for the future conviction of sin and repentance, even when in a future time He will have hidden His face from them, so we may also prepare those whom we lead for future conviction of sin future repentance. Whether it's our church, if we are church leaders, or whether it's our children, if we are parents, we can make provision for their future conviction of sin and repentance. Consider the practice of family worship. Simply the act of reading the scriptures and praying and singing day by day in our families. Look, that makes general memories and general, lays general foundations for our kids. There are so, so, so many testimonies of people who came to faith later in life thinking back on the piety and devotion of their mother or their father and the way that they used to pray in their families. And just this general pattern, this general habit impresses upon children the way that they should go. And if one day they are wandering 
they will know in their hearts that they are wandering in spite of the way that their parents brought them up and not because of or in a way that follows naturally from the way that their parents brought them up. But specifically, we also instill in our children things that will, as God puts it here in Deuteronomy 31, 21, things that will live unforgotten in their mouths. When we teach them to memorize scripture, that word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The very fact that I quoted that in the King James tells you I didn't memorize it lately. Right? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Look, you put those things to live unforgotten in the mouths of your children. And you teach them even the practice of catechesis. Catechism is a staple of normal standard Christian living really since the days of the Reformation. In fact, probably even before. I'm not a church historian, so I can't say it with any certainty. But the practice has been recognized to teach our kids the fundamentals of the faith. Who is the first and chiefest of beings? God is the first and chiefest of beings. Right? And so on and so forth. And you put these things to live unforgotten in the mouths of your children. And there are wonderful things that they can recall. I mentioned this morning, for example, the Heidelberg Catechism, question one, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own, but belong, body and soul, to Jesus Christ. Who knows whether one day long after you're gone, your 89-year-old child is laying in a hospital bed, unbelieving, and thinking about his own or her own mortality, and remembers what you taught them when they were three or four, that I'm not my own, belong body and soul to Jesus Christ and right there and then at 89 after you've been in glory for a good while your unbelieving child comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and says I need that comfort now as I face death scripture memorization catechesis and look here as a musician I love this songs God teaches them a song this is a song that God wrote Right? He told Moses, look, write down and teach them the words of this song that I'm about to give you. He says, well, Moses wrote down that same day, this song. Which tells us it wasn't Moses' song, this was God's song. Now it's not particularly catchy to us, it's beautiful, we'll see it next week. It's beautiful, but it's not particularly catchy to us as it's been translated from Hebrew into English. And then secondly, we don't really have access to the tune. Right? But presumably, when it was given, it was something that was, that was memorable. And there was, there was something pleasing and, and desirable about the melody and memorable. This is, I think, one reason why God gives us songs. Like, this is one thing when you, when you say, look, God's grace is amazing. And it's another thing when you sing, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There's something that moves us when we sing. And so it engages not only our minds, but it engages also our affections. And God gave them a song. There are songs that we've been singing for years that the kids picked up on like quick, ever since they were little. One little song that one of my sons invented when he was like probably not even two. 
and from time to time we just still sing it. It's just a little one or two liner. But he, he just came up with this little melody and just said, you know, holy is God Almighty. You know? And it's for him it was his little way when he was not yet to of just saying some true things about God. Bring them out. We still sing it from time to time. There's other little little ditties that that uh, we made up over the years. You know, one about listen to rebukes. Do not be a fool. Listen to rebukes. And it, it goes in in a, a way into the kids' memory bank that literally just getting them to memorize prose doesn't do. And you know full well there are men who are not in any sense walking with the Lord, who have been very delinquent with respect to their, their wives or their baby mamas or their kids, perhaps even from multiple different women, and not living responsibly, not living morally, not living godly at all. But you know how many of those guys know the words to songs that they grew up with in Sunday school? And if you start singing it, it's right there. It is right there. And those songs live unforgotten in their mouths. And you know what God will do? God will use that to save some of them. Some of those men will be saved, I guarantee you. Some of the men who who learned songs that their parents taught them, that their Sunday school teachers taught them, will one day think about those songs and will come back to Christ. So we know that the people we lead spiritually are going to do wrong stuff. And we, we warn them and we, we threaten them with God's punishments. But we also make provision for their conviction of sin and repentance by instilling in them scripture and catechesis and songs. And as God benevolently brings the people of Israel into the promised land anyway, so we continue to act benevolently anyway to the people that we lead. The churches, our families. There's a song by Trisha Yearwood that says, I would have loved you anyway. And it's a song really about a romantic relationship that broke, broke off, but you could apply it more broadly. If I had known the way that this would end, if I had read the last page first, and then it goes on and on and it says, you'd still have seen me running straight into your arms. Look, if we were only going to love the people in our churches as church leaders, if they're deserving, if they merit it until they don't deserve it anymore. If we're only going to be benevolent towards our kids till they mess up, they give us a little talk back or even some serious rebellion in teenagehood or in adulthood, and then we say, you know what? Forget you. I'm done with you. We're not leading after a manner, after the manner of the heart of God. We need to act benevolently anyway. Remember, it's about the process. We are not responsible for the outcome. What we're responsible for is the manner in which we lead. 
I had a conversation with a couple of people recently in Toronto who are um, they're considering adoption as they have struggled with infertility and they were asking me we just had a really nice heart to heart and we were having a we were having a long talk and they said sometimes because of the trauma that adopted children have gone through depending on the various circumstances surrounding that sometimes you hear stories about situations in which maybe families adoptive families don't bond the way that you were hoping that it would that you would and sometimes misbehavior and uh, rebellion and bad outcomes from children who come into the family in that way. You know, one of the things that they were asking me is like, well, what about, what about that? And they were just raising their fears with me about that. And I, I said, look, first of all, those things happen even with biological children. You don't, you don't just, it's not a matter of like everything is the American dream when you have bio kids and it may not turn out that way if you don't. It's not, that's just a really false and naive way to look at it. This can happen in, in any case. But it says specifically with, with respect to adoption, when we recognize that there are kids out there that for whatever reason their parents are unable to care for them. To love those children is inherently good. It's, it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's an inherently good thing to bring those children into our families and say, I'm going to love you forever. And I'm committed to you, to do you good. Whatever the outcome is, I'm going to know that there will be sin on your part. I'm going to warn you about God's threatenings and God's punishments. I'm going to make provision for your future conviction of sin and repentance. And I'm just going to continue to do you good anyways and always, forever, the way that God did good for the people of Israel, even knowing ahead of time what would happen by bringing them west across the Jordan into the promised land. To love, to give, to be benevolent, to do justice, love mercy, to be gracious, to be giving, to have compassion on people as sheep without a shepherd, to say, I'll shepherd you, I'll take care of you. This is inherently good, irrespective of the outcome. So as Moses led the people of Israel after the manner of the heart of God, so we who have any sort of spiritual leadership over others ought to lead those after the manner of the heart of God also. This is the first application. The second application of our passage tonight is this. Wanderer from God, consider 
God's fatherly care for you. What I'm about to say is especially true if you belong to Christ, as we know that there is a sense in which only those who are in Christ are the children of God and may call God Father in that special and unique way. But there is a sense in which God is a Father even to those who are not in Christ. We consider, for example, God's fatherhood over the whole nation of Israel, as I just read to you from Deuteronomy 32. Like an eagle with its young, the Lord guided Jacob. Compares himself to a father out of Egypt that called my son. And we know not all of these people were in Christ and were saved. And we know from, from Psalm 100 that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Who? Well, all of us who have been made, we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. There's a sense in which God is a father to all and relates as a father to all. Consider, if you are far from God, consider God's ongoing goodness to you in spite of your wickedness, which he knew ahead of time was going to happen. Look, whatever, whatever it is that you've done, whatever singular choice you've made or, or series of choices that you have made that have resulted in you being far from God, that have resulted in evils and troubles befalling you, and God hiding His face from you. Look, God knew that it was going to happen before it even happened. And what did God do? He warned you. Right? He did it anyway. But He has made provision for your conviction of sin and repentance. Even with respect to the fact that you are here tonight or watching online and listening to this. Consider that God's warnings have been truthful, haven't they? Being far from God with His face hidden from you only results in evil and trouble. But consider that what is written here in Deuteronomy 31 is not just for the people of Israel. Nor is it even just for New Testament Christians. But it's for everyone to read and learn from about who God is. Which means this song, though it was primarily for the Old Covenant people of Israel, there's a sense in which this song, understood rightly in its context, is for you. Because what it's showing us is that God wrote a song to bring back people that He knew would wander which shows us the kind of God He is. That God is the kind of God that writes songs so that when you're far away and you can't find Him anywhere, and you cry out to Him and it seems like your prayers are hitting the ceiling, you can remember a song. And you can remember in this far-off country that there is a father back home who is willing to have you back. And he went to the trouble to pen a song that you would remember forever. That would live unforgotten in your mouth. This concept is illustrated well in the parable of the prodigal son. Out there in the far country, in the pig's side. Right? 
thought to himself, man, let me go home. Maybe I can just live as one of my father's servants. Not only Luke 15, but Deuteronomy 31 and 32 rightly tell us that God is willing to have us back. Not just as servants, but as sons and as daughters. I just want you to imagine if the son in Luke 15 had been there in the pigsty and knew that his father had been at home working on a song for his son. I don't, know, I don't know what they had, a sitar? Maybe not a guitar, but a sitar? A harp. <laughs> Imagine that father sat there on his front patio working on a song about his son and his son's sin. He just wished his son could hear that song. And I want you to imagine if this son was on his way home to ask his father to be his servant. And somehow it was a windy day and the words and the melody wafted on the breeze before he was within eyesight. He would know. My father has gone to the trouble of writing a song about my wandering. He's going to be glad to see me. He's going to be happy to have me home. Listen, God is ready to meet you, wanderer, in Christ. Not sitting behind a big oak desk as you approach him with your resume or your CV in hand, looking for a job as a hired servant. God in Christ is ready to meet you at the end of the driveway. After he has run there, when he saw you on the horizon. God is a God who has wrote a song for the one who is far from him. That he might live unforgotten in our mouths and that even when we're too far to see his face, that we would remember that he's the kind of God that writes a song for the wanderer so that we can come to our senses as that son in the pigsty and so that we can go home. Jesus is calling, as it were, not, not the devotional book. Stay, steer clear. <laughs> but Jesus is calling. Oh sinner, come home. Why should we tarry when Jesus is calling? <laughs>